I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Topcon Agriculture. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Sometimes called the father of zone tillage, Ray Rawson and his sons run a large acreage operation in Michigan that features no-till corn and soybeans. Ray spent a number of years promoting the zone-till system at meetings across the Corn Belt and working one-on-one with growers. A number of today's reduced tillage tools got their start in the Rawson farm shop. In this podcast, no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Ray Rawson about zone tillage, the zone builder, his ever-changing planter setups, and some of the inventions Ray developed over the years. This is Ray Rawson at Farwell, Michigan, and I'm a Michigan native down by uh, north of Detroit, but I think of where you are, Ray, is about the area where it turns to forestry and trees north of you, and south it's pretty much cropland, right? Pretty much. We're right on the edge of the outback, yep. We do farm some up in the trees, but it's... <laughs> it's becoming more and more of an issue with the deer all the time. Right. Did you grow up in this area? Yeah. Yep. I was born, born, and raised here. This is home. We kind of figured out how to, how to somewhat survive here, and uh, so I don't think we'd be too happy anywhere else. Right. We'd have to learn all over again. So you're farming today with your boys? Yes, we are. The boys, uh, Steve and Dave, they're, uh, they're pretty much in charge of the whole thing. And, Setting back and trying to help them make some decisions, but you know, they they pretty much make most of the decisions, and I'm pretty happy with what they're making. Right, it's kind of like me. Our son's running the company and doing a great job, and I just sit All back right. and if he asks for some advice, I give it to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they don't need to take, but we'll give it anyway. So that's yeah. Good. So you're farming yeah. a pretty big acreage. Uh, we're we're. A little bit now. We were at twenty-one thousand. We're down around the sixty, seventeen thousand. Yeah. So, how long have you uh, been practicing no-till or zone-till? I think we were one of the earlier ones. Uh, about when Kentucky was looking at things in '66, I think probably is when we really got geared up to to run uh, multiple planters with it. The first year or two, we tried to experiment with what worked in our cold, tough soil. So I'd, I'd say around the 1966 is kind of where it really got serious. So going back to 1966, what did your planter look like, or can you remember? <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Basically, they were uh, one of the earlier John Deere planters, uh, the old, old six, 7000 series, or probably just prior to that. But it was a, a rough-made frame out front to put a... a pair of colders out there and they were uh, plow colders and we found uh, what we call them as tillage colders they're a wavy type colder and at that time they were two inch wavy colders and um, I, I, that's where it started we ran those for a year and found that they worked okay but just weren't tough enough to penetrate conversion ground from conventional to no-till. You know, still the clay ground hadn't made her transition yet. So from that, we experimented with other cultures, and finally we decided we had to build our own. 
And then that was uh, the earlier days before there was uh, basically no-till colders out there, uh, multiple colders. Uh, I think AC had them on their planter about that time. And we did have one of those in the beginning also, but it was a single colder. And what we found was uh, with the design of that colder, it wanted to pitch more dirt out than we thought we needed to pitch out. And again, with the heavy clay ground, it was chunky. So that was where the multiple colders came in. And we started to put a single colder in the lead and then a pair of colters beside those on each side. And they were all staggered so that they would function through virtually uh, cover crops or about anything you wanted to plant into. Uh, Some of the muck ground was an issue in the beginning. But these staggered colders seemed to to function everywhere. And then as that went along, we discovered uh, quite quickly that we could change the configuration of the colder blades to a smaller wave in them, and and more waves went from... uh, to the two-inch wave to the, the one-inch or one-and-an-eighth uh, with multiple waves in it, which gave us a, a better, finer seed bed. And then, and yet today, we still maintain that three-colder setup. And I would say is a, a lot of our dirt that's been in this program for many years, we could probably get away with uh, almost nothing, you know, as far as the texture of the soil now and the organic matter created in that uh, seed bed area but we still maintain the colders and we can you know it warms the dirt up for one thing cold wet springs we can rototill it and the the amazing thing that we saw was you could go through wet pockets and it changed those wet pockets virtually the same as the drier areas where if you run a disc tillage disc or a cultivator or something through those wet holes um, there was a a really slow holdback to the the plant growth, and we still see that today with guys that are trying to open these wet holes up, and it still just seems like it doesn't do the same as a a minimum tillage or what I would call as organized tillage with the colders. Right. Just don't have that quite figured out yet, but uh, it does. It, it is a di- quite a difference. Well, your system's pretty much known as zone till. How'd you come up with that name for that? Zone till, basically it was a tillage in a zone or an organized, what I call it, organized zones in, in which uh, we're only tilling the areas that we want to warm up, uh, place fertilizer in. And that was the other thing that really uh, made a difference with us is able to row support our, all of our nitrogen, all of our P and K, and trace elements within that to root zone. So the plants actually picked it up quicker, didn't have to hunt and gather so much, but it was also a part of uh, in, inducing the heat and oxygen within that zone of updraft. As we tickle or till those zone areas, the water depth in the soil migrated to the surface, and it got up to that surface area where we had tilled it and slowed down and then it warmed up. Mm-hmm. It's what we saw in the 66, uh, early 70 area that if you dumped that ice cold water on the seed, it, it really slowed it down. And in some cases it, it changed the, the way the plant grew. So we just 
felt that it was an advantage to warm the ground up at the same time and just create a more consistent seed bed. Even today, we, we watch people around the country in bad conditions, wet and cold, uh, trying to warm the ground up. Uh, they go out there with the massive tillage, tickle tillers, um, and virtually every one of those fields, you can see clay balls or um, roots out in them. And then as the crop grows, you can see dual wheel tracks wherever they ran. And with this zone tillage, uh, we organize the tillage tracks. We're operating between where the rows are planted. It kind of really minimizes the amount of compaction that's sure. generated on a, a tough year. And thankfully, uh, we've had about three tough years in a row here, and it's, it hasn't stopped raining for three days right now. And it's right. A, it's a concern. Right. So and what role widths are you in? Uh, we've we've kind of moved uh, around to a, a lot of things, and right now we're still in the corners are 30 inches. The soybeans, most of them are in twin rows, uh, 7.5-inch twins with the 21-inch between them. Uh, there's a couple reasons for that is that we have tra- traffic areas where we can get our foliar feed on and uh, chemical application, but yet we have a... This seven and a half inch plant almost grows like a box. Sure. That when we foliar feed, we're getting a, a nice uh, flat surface over the top of the leaves to foliar feed it. It's productive. It works really well, and we're using precision uh, Great Plains planters for that now with our colders on them. So uh, with the twin rows, you can just run your normal three colder zone system. Yes, and- yes, we yes we can, yes we can. Yep, and at the same time, on the beans, if the soil test calls for it, uh, with the same machine, we can add nutrition to it at the same time and vary the nutrition. You know, you don't need a lot on those beans. You don't want to burn them, but you can uh, vary the rates as you're going to to satisfy the soil test. That seems to be a, well, and again, in the price of our nutrition, it just pays to kind of try to control it as much as you can. Yeah. With your acreage, you must get a number of new fields every year. Yes, we do. Yes, and we do. How, how do you handle those? Some of those will probably had a lot more tillage on it than you're yeah. going to do. They They have had, and that's where several years ago we came up with what we call the uh, zone builder. In which was right. a very narrow leg tool that would go in, and you know, in, in those days, uh, we would basically tell everyone, you know, don't expect a zone tillage or no till to change things very quickly, and you you might need to to watch for a little uh, decrease the first year or two. But once we got on the zone build process, in which we did a lot of uh, hole creation to see where our hard pans were, where the natural pan is, and where the man-made pans are, and created the tool that went down through. And most soils have a um, natural pan in it. So we would go down through those, just crack underneath of it enough to drop water and air and come back in the spring and plant right on top of those. The thing that really helped this a lot was our... GPS guidance systems now where you can lock right back on and if you want to plant an inch off the side of that slot or right on top of it 
it's pretty easy to do it today. Multiple size tools, you know, with the impossible at this time is to pull a 24 row zone builder, but we can pull 12 row zone builders and still still line right up with the planters. So I remember maybe 15, 20 years ago being at your place, and this was probably in mid-August or so, mm-hmm. and you took you took me over to a field that you had rented from somebody for the very first year that time, and you'd used a zone builder and put okay. it in. And that's as impressive a field of soybeans as I've uh-huh. ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, you know, there's a lot of things we do that don't work, but that one was one of them that uh, just paid attention to the thoughts of giving every seed the, the same opportunity that when you planted him there, if you did your planting system correct, every one of those plants had the same ability to go after water and root management and depth of roots and, and go down into the profile on the dry summers. Uh, they had water. That hasn't changed. You know, Some things, yeah. like I say, the old things still work. Well, you in a couple articles we've done with you, you've talked about farming vertically, and this is kind of what you're talking that's, about, that's right? The vertical farming, yes, yeah, yeah. Yep. That's what kind of amuses me now. There's a lot of vertical tillage tools out there, but I'm not sure we're talking about some of the same things. That they, about all <laughs> right. they're doing is tickling the top of the dirt. Right, right. Yeah. So you were promoting the zone till system. You were one of the first people that saw the value of the critical soil micros underneath the oh, uh, service. And, and now now everybody's talking about soil health, but you were a pioneer with this. Tell me why you saw earlier how important it was. Well, here again, as we begin to look at different nutrition values and things that uh, – it kind of led to one thing. Let's let's keep digging holes and let's see what we have in there and and really studying the biological activities. You know, first of all, about all we can really see is the earthworms mm-hmm. and the other basics is, is out there. You know, back then there was all the universities was telling us there's 250,000 of these little biological animals in the ground and they are our manufacturing plants that transition. Uh, natural organic nutrition plus the inorganic nutrition that goes into the plants. And again, you just start putting two and two together. If we can do some of the things that the farmer can physically do, and then let's start taking care of those guys and feeding them. You know, here again, that's something I don't think will ever change as we get back to the, the organic matter and the basic function of what organic matter does. And i I've always said that you could put all the fertilizers that you could possibly haul on Lake Michigan shores over there, and with all the water in the world, you still wouldn't get uh, very many bushel out of it. Mm-hmm. But if you uh, put him in a bucket of organic matter and set him on the hot beach and put water in him, you're going to have a crop. So, yeah. so it's just common sense with a lot of that, but it's it's the way nature works. The old fence row thing, you know, if you went into a new farm and cleaned them up and those fence rows were just much better than the rest of the field for several years till we could get the and down and, and creating the natural environment in it this deeper and that's what what I think uh, is long term what I what I've been calling sustainable agriculture for a long time is to be able to function more than just uh, three or four or five or six inches at the top and and try to create an insurance of somehow that 
you would have those roots deep into the soil. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, it, and as they decay out, they're a plant, they're a food source for the biology and the earthworms. Uh, it gives them uh, a highway to move up and down. And um, it hasn't changed much, but it's still, uh, still, it's a job, you know. And there's a lot of people uh, maybe just don't want to take the time to do that, but it's it pays. So uh, how many rows on your planters? Anywhere from 24 to 36. We're running eight planters right now, I believe. Back in the uh, 70s and 80s, one of the things I did for a number of years is I would come over sometime in August and visit with you a half day. Mm -hmm. And the reason I did this was every year I think you had sold off your planters and we're and over the winter we're forced to build some new ones. So tell me about <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> well, we get a lot of traffic here, and there's some dealers that would 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 make the effort to change them, and that was especially true when they were smaller planters. Sure. You know they would help the farmer go ahead and do it for them, but as the planters grew and grew, a lot of the dealers didn't want to take the time or labor, and so it was a I guess it started off that just people came in and started offering to buy planters, the mm-hmm. ones we were using. They were pretty well went through and ready to go to the field again. So that's kind of, kind of that was the, the boys until we got a bigger crew around here. They were kind of getting tired of that. But <laughs> um, now we got a pretty big crew here that we can can do about whatever they need to do if the occasion arises. Yeah. So. What I remember most was every year you had something new you were putting on your own planter. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's still the case, and this, the boys still get upset, but now I've got a, uh, a young engineer hired, and he, he uh, kind of gets it done, and he's a fabricator also, so we'll, we'll create what we want to put on them, and then uh, if, if he needs help, a couple guys will kick in to help create new ideas so it's it's a good thing i just you know i really enjoy that and that's kind of where where i like to spend a lot of my time now and then uh, i do spend a lot of time in the foliar application also so i can see if if that made a difference on if you put 12 rows on and you skip every other row or whatever size of planter that we were changing you can see the difference you you get off and uh Right now, we're you know obviously the more more pods and the bigger ears you can put on, maybe that made a little bit of a difference. Yeah. So take one of your planters and walk me through what attachments you have on it. Right now, the Kinseys, the bigger Kinseys, uh, are running three three quarters per row, pretty much like they have been. Uh, we were experimenting with parallel link holders. For several years, uh, we are still running some of those up on the front bar. I did add, uh, about the time Mr. Martin and I were talking, uh, I did add uh, row cleaners, dual row cleaners up on the front of the lead holder mm-hmm. and with depth wheels back there. And that, that, did, that did a wonderful job. Uh, the only problem that I could see is being a farmer, I just couldn't justify the cost to try to create those and sell them to other farmers. Sure. So that kind of left that up to other people with their row cleaners and uh, 
And there's nothing wrong with what they're doing today, I don't think. If they want to use row cleaners back there just simply to give us a better uh, soil seed contact, that's that's awesome. But mm-hmm. uh, I still like the, the tillage up front, the grape, you know, back to the John Deere's. They're running a John Deere fertilizer opener in there, and then we're running our colders in front of those. That's a little more difficult on the bigger planters, the 24-row planters. It's a little more difficult. We will be changing uh, at least one of those this year to see um, what we can make happen with uh, dropping that John Deere out of there and going back to using our dry boots to to lay the nutrition down. And uh, we've... uh, had pretty good luck. Uh, what we decided years on, on ago was that we're laying that fertilizer right beside the one-inch 13-wave fluted blade on uh, beyond the third, second colder in the series. Mm-hmm. That will uh, you shoot the nutrition right beside the blade, and it'll take it down into the ground in a uh, dis- distributed fashion instead of uh, ribboning it down there as a hot spot. It'll blend it to where more roots will go into it. And here again, I've, I've seen with that hot spot in there, if the guys happen to get too close together, they can can dampen off quite a few roots in the early stages. This, this, this is uh, probably going to be brought through to all the planters. I know the Great Plains, that's the way we're running them right now, is to come down through there and with a, a boot, uh, created a splitter boot, that comes down between the rows and lays the material on the inside of the seeds. And it, it puts it off to the seed far enough to where it doesn't seem to burn it at all. It gets a good jump out of the ground once it uh, converts to the ability to be absorbed. So on a 36-row planter and with all these colders, you got a lot of weight. What's it take horsepower-wise to pull that? Well, in, in the newer soils, and in following the first year zone builder, uh, they're running 450 horse, 500 mm-hmm. horse on them. Yeah. Tires or tracks? Uh, both. Yeah. I like to, when they allow me to help them, I like to run tracks. The, <laughs> in there. I don't know. I just like to paddle between the rows. The, the other tractors are set up with, uh, I think they're 16.9 triples, mm-hmm. all the four four wheelers, and they got those set up to where they're running between the rows also. So tell me a little about their fertility, how much you put on a planter, what else you put on? Well, basic fertility in our world is gypsum for one thing. We run a bunch of gypsum on, on the new farms and then watch the calcium and sulfur contents as time goes on. And then obviously your lime, the northern country takes quite a bit of dolomitic lime up there. And down where we're at is the calcium lime. But, uh, over the years, and we had a couple of agronomists really looking at that for a while, they couldn't understand how, how our needs were being reduced for the calcium lime. But they finally decided it was the, the uh, no-till aspect of the, the operation. For some reason or another, wasn't uh, consuming all the uh, calcium. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, that was a pos- positive thing. So now we're... The only thing that we broadcast now is the gypsum and, and the lime aspect. Everything else, the NP and K, all goes through the planters. Okay. And uh, as, as we probably shared years ago, 
And we've got a lot of guys still doing it. It's about 2.75 pounds of N per bushel. And that's that's in some pretty good ground. You know, the guys down in uh, Indiana and Illinois are still maintaining that. But now where they're getting that, you know, the 350, 400 bushel, uh, they're going to have, they're moving up. But in our country, for 200 bushel, we can still pretty much year after year make that work. We'll rejoin Frank and Ray in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. From planning to precision machine control to NORAC boom height control monitoring and mapping to data management, Topcon Agriculture offers a total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. To find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use, visit topconpositioning.com forward slash growing solutions to learn more about how Topcon Agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little known no-till farmer fact. Saving trips over the field is one of the big benefits of no-till, but someone asked me recently how many trips could be saved. With conventional tillage, the average number of trips is probably seven or more across the field during the growing season. With minimum tillage, that would drop to four or five trips. And with no tillage, it might be as few as two or three. One could be the planter's drill, a second could be the spray, and a third would be the combine. But when you look at the conventional tillage with seven or more, you get in the San Joaquin Valley of California and some of these vegetable growers are doing as many as 12 to 14 trips across the field during the year. So no-till can be a big savings on equipment, labor, etc. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank and Ray Rawson. Well, tell me about your foliar program and what you do. Um, well, many, many years ago, we started out uh, making our own, and it was done basically with uh, liquefied urea as a base, mm-hmm. and then we were using a uh, source of energy, which was uh, rejected Coca-Cola sugar that uh-huh. wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't pass for the human consumption. And for many years, they hauled it up to us out of Chicago to just get rid of it. Huh. And uh, so that was that's two several things. You know, I, I call it liquid sunshine that actually uh, gives energy to the plants, and that's kind of what we're trying to do with the photosynthesis progress. You know, make sugar. Sure. Right. And we found early on that there was a tremendous amount of that. No, well, I shouldn't say a tremendous amount, but about twenty-five percent, maybe a little more than that, from one year to the next was. Uh, being extradited out through the roots to feed the biology. And you, we saw quite an explosion of biology with uh, that sugar process. So that went on for several years, but at that time we were also adding in an, an organic 20-20-20 to the, the mix with our urea. And that that was on, on the corn. The soybeans, uh, we came back to a straight 20-20-20 and in the last uh, few years, we've been using uh, blackstrap molasses mm-hmm. instead of the sugar, which that uh, that molasses still has the unrefined minerals in it, trace elements, 
and we're we're liking that better right now. So that's that'll be a plan for another year or two yet. Just to keep uh, evaluating if that's worth. It's a little thicker. I guess what I'm trying to say, and it's a little more work for our guys to get it uh, screened and and run through the planters. So you're putting sprayers. Okay, so you're putting some foliar on with the planter, and then putting on uh, some later. The sugar, the sugar. Oh, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sugar, sugar. Yeah, it's going. Okay. Down in the furrow and around the seed. Yeah. And then are you uh, putting fertilizer on later with the sprayer? Oh yeah, yes we are. Generally, the soybeans will get about three applications of uh, a light shot of the foliar, and that depends on you know what the leaf analysis tells us again. But anywhere from two pounds to five pounds of this uh, 2020. And if we have to in our in our mock lands, we'll have to add manganese to that, which uh, kind of kind of works both ways. We have to do it anyway. We can't get enough pickup with the manganese mixed in the fertilizer to take care of the yellowing of the plant. So the foliar feed will bring it back quite quickly, but mm-hmm. it, it needs to be done several times, so. which is okay. Cause then we'll foliar feed it with some nutrition each time, and uh, it, it makes bushels. So when are you taking a leaf analysis? Uh, we'll take it at uh, two or three stages. The first stage uh, will We'll be at about R1, right in there, to see where that's all starting to happen, and then we'll keep it up for every two weeks. Now you got you must have an awful lot of fields with the acreage you have. Do you do this on fields in an area, or a lot of fields? Or no, what? fields in an area that were planted the same way mm-hmm. and with the same soil analysis, and yeah. if they got the same rain, that's Technology today can tell you where the rain, you know, hit you and where it didn't hit you. So right. It's, it's those are the things you can't complain about progress. Right. It, it all helps you. So, what uh, population are you planting corn and soybeans at? The corn, uh, pretty much, well, down in our this area where we're based at, is a run around to thirty-four thousand. Uh, very rarely will we get up above that. Um, the soybeans. Here again, it depends on the year. We just went through that yesterday morning at a meeting. Now, one of the planters was running at 20, 125,000, and another one just like it was running at 160,000. The twin row planters were running at about a 170, and then the ones they drilled in, they were getting close to 200. But here we're going to evaluate that again. We've we've had some pretty good luck with the lower rates. Mm-hmm. We're, we're still not saying that's the thing that we're going to do next year. But when we <laughs> get her get her harvested, we'll uh, we'll see what it looks like. Well, I pulled off pulled up an article we had done years ago with you, and you had had some beans that were doing pretty good at only eighty thousand population. Yeah, well, I hate to tell you, but we're still. <laughs> Doing that on a small basis, and and you get the right year, mm-hmm. it's amazing what they'll do for you. Yeah. Now, yeah, the other thing that we're doing, well, here again, I don't know. This might be just, well, it's it's a, a legal thing. We purchased uh, the rights to plant seed from Stein. Sure. And uh, then we we clean our own, and we found a system that we can 
separate the seeds. So as they go into our seed trucks, they're all the same size. Mm-hmm. You know, we can take the little ones out and and set where we want them. But um, I, I'm, to me, I'm thinking that's where the eighty thousand is working. Yeah. But I hate to tell you know hate to <laughs> tell anybody that's a thing to be doing. But you know, we are to right. some extent. So. Years ago, Zone Till was probably more popular than it is today. You had a number of people who did it. What what happened to the other people with Zone Till? That could be very wrong. Is that as the planters got bigger, got bigger, and the guys, you know, I, I guess didn't want to chase the whole system to build the big planters. Sure. And it was easier for them to put another tool out there. Um, you know, we did see uh, zone tillage types of applicators out, and I kind of tracked those guys around. They were going out early, strip tilling it early, um, and that kind of fell away too. In most of the cases that I've been following, is it just a? It takes a planner-oriented driver to operate a strip till tool ahead of it, and I've talked to a lot of dealers out west that that's kind of a fading thing there too and now it's a it's the broadcast fertilizer and 50 60 foot tillage tools and and big planters and it looks like uh, there's getting to be less and less operators out there and fewer and fewer people are operating all the land so mm-hmm. that could be it but you know in, in our case I just felt uh, it worked that well and how it is we'll just figure ways to to make the planners bigger and make them work yeah going back to the zone builder do you uh use this on all your new fields or how many and oh, you go well, back after a couple of years and do it again or not uh, right every new field gets that in the fall and then there are cases where we'll use them on older farms where the grain carts run we run grain carts around the perimeters of the field we don't go across them Mm-hmm. So they'll, they'll run around, take all the green cart tracks out and headlands where the trucks are off the road. But as, as a normal thing, it's uh, probably uh, not on the new farm. They may be done three times totally. Mm-hmm. That might be the end of it. Three times okay. in, how many, yeah. in how many years would you do it three times? Uh, about five years. Okay, good. So you've invented a number of products that are on the market, including the Zone Builder. What else did you do that got manufactured? Oh, boy. <laughs> we did a lot with the, the mini sprayer systems, the tracks on those. Mm-hmm. The fertilizer application colders, I think most. I think they all came from here. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was just with the uh, planning methods and kind of the patent i'd have to go look at the patents again right now right. I, uh, zone builders are probably your big things and the uh, the strip tills were all part of it i know there's a lot of strip till units out there right that are guys are using and now what i find is the guys that have taken the time to create a 24 row planner they will use those as a stripping tool also in the fall sure that helps, and we've we've uh, connected uh, with 
Roger Montag, you know, with the dry fertilizer application, the bulk system uh, yeah. parts on that. We've added a lot of those to the planters. Uh, the pioneered kind of the piston pumps for the delivery of high gallons on the planters, you know, whether basically a nitrogen application where those squeeze pumps just couldn't uh, maintain that volume. Uh, yeah. Deteriorate real quick. But that's kind of all we've really been focusing on. You reminded me of the mini sprayers. Tell me about the mini sprayers. Oh, well, those were involved uh, with Jeff Mick in uh, St. Louis area. Sure. He, he started with them, and we got involved with him with power units on the front. He was running uh, ATVs. And in our country, the hills, so forth, uh, they didn't quite have enough power, plus the creature comfort, I would say. Mm-hmm. So the boys got into the Suzuki situation or the little geo tracker rigs and, and created a way to, to pull those things with them. And that, there was a lot of those. see a lot of them still around the country running. And uh, and when the big thing that we had is if if on the old conventional ground was able to run out uh, without making any tracks or compaction with these things in uh, in the spring where it was quite wet, mm-hmm. well, that that uh, that worked pretty well. But uh, obviously today uh, things have changed with that, and you're into the bigger bigger egg gem and John Deere's and taking right. it that way now. So scheduling and getting all this stuff in the right fields at the right time must be a total headache. <laughs> yes, it is. Especially if the weather doesn't cooperate. You know, you try yeah. to try to pick it out. And in, in our our operation here is that we have a frost concern in the northern mm, sure. parts up there. So that'll be the ones that we try to focus on earlier. Uh, now, when we were running some of that sand ground, that wasn't. A problem. You could go up there anytime and plant. Yeah. But now a little bit closer out of the tree line is that uh, it's. Uh, I shouldn't say it. Well, I should say it's a lot of road time. You know, the mm-hmm. Guys that are out agronomy, guys that go out and make a decision: uh, is it too wet to plant, or is it another three days to plant? And we found that uh, as this system gets in place, it's a little easier to do this where the ground doesn't have to be worked or tickled or softened at that surface. Uh, The ability to, well, you you know how it works, the density of the soil is not hard. It's just a different structure. Right. It's just a little easier than it used to be uh, in the beginning. Right now with the acres, it would be rare if you had to go very far and turn around and come back. Mm -hmm. So how far are your farthest fields from headquarters? To run a sprayer to them at uh, 30 miles an hour, it it takes about an hour and a half. So we're probably, you know, 40 miles and one into the other run. Well, that's that's going north. The east, going east is another 40 miles. So it's, it's quite a circle. (laughs) <laughs> so uh harvest how many combines does it take to make this work uh nine okay and what do you do with the corn and beans we have storage for an awful lot of them um there are some elevators around the country that will store uh corn for us as we pull it in and uh dry it at uh 
our trucking fleet will haul it right to them and store it, and as they use it, they'll compensate us for it. Uh, sure. Soybeans, uh, no, uh, it's kind of the same thing, it's, especially this year. We're getting a lot of calls of a concern. There's a lot of PP in our world. And uh, bigger, like the Zealand people, they're uh, wanting us, they've been, I think they're hauling six or eight train loads a day to Zealand, which they, wow. we used to move it to uh, the Holland area, and now mm-hmm. they've got a big plant in Ithaca that we've, uh, okay. we started hauling there to see if all their equipment was going to run, and uh, and they're still hauling there every day. Well, Ithaca would be much shorter than going to oh, Holland or Zealand oh my, for you. Uh, yeah, that uh, Holland-Zealand area, that was a five-hour round trip. And now these guys uh, are making three turns a day. So that big difference in the cost. And it's uh, in the wintertime going to Zealand, it was uh, dangerous. You know, the snow and the slippery roads and the people. So this, I think, is it's going to be a much better situation now. So up where you are, what uh, what would be the number of day hybrids you would plant? Uh, the corn, and we just ordered a bunch of it. Is ninety two day. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the soybeans, uh, we did uh, become involved with the North Dakota State to some extent last year on a enterprise they're working on with uh, zeros and one point fives, and mm-hmm. we did. Uh, plant some of their uh, zero beans this year, which uh, was probably a good move. I know they're a little short for us uh, down at the main operation here, but that's we we wanted to watch them. We put 750 acres here around the buildings, and uh, we had planned on planting wheat into all the PP ground. Uh, it's like your world, it hadn't stopped raining since. But uh, as we harvested the the beans off in the 750 acres, the grain droves were following right behind them. Mm-hmm. Might have been a little wet, but you know if you couldn't walk in the other fields. These here were doing a fine job. That again is all part of what what makes it work on these acres. Right. So you do have some wheat in your rotations, huh? Uh, some, yeah, yeah, we do. Do any cover crops? Yeah, yeah, we aerial seed uh, rye in and aerial seed uh, oats. Got uh, that seems to be working. Got neighbors around the country doing the same thing now. Uh, have a nephew or a whole part of the family has a airplane, and so it's uh, the airstrip is uh, on the main farms, and uh, he can get a, a lot of cover crop in a, in a hurry. Yeah, so that that's been working pretty well for us. So you mentioned 200 bushel corn. Is that a goal for you? Yeah, you know, overall, there's the, the dirt uh, land south of the buildings down in the flat black dirt, the Ziegenfuss type soil. That's 200 is pretty, pretty common, easy in there or, or more. Then you get up north with the shorter seasons. Uh, 150 would be very, very pleasing, 175. Mm-hmm. How about soybeans? Soybeans are still still hanging in there pretty pretty well. The ones uh, with the in the southern end of the place here, the, the twos, two fives, they'll run seventy bushel year in and year out. Uh, 
as you move north uh, with the shorter season, you're down to the 40, 45 bushel. Um, there has been, I can't remember what year it was, but we did get down to 30 bushel up north. It was just very, very dry that year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, if you can if you can be somewhere in that 45 bushel in our world, uh, pretty happy. Yeah. But when you get to the 70 bushel, you're really happy. Years ago, we wrote something that said you got 118 bushels of soybeans off a 160-acre field. Yep, yep. <laughs> that's still that's still possible. We've we've done that, but you know, to be uh, honest, in a uh, presentation or an article that was on a, a small piece of land that was probably as good a dirt as uh, the fellows in Iowa have. Right, been a dairy farm for a lot of years, and and those uh, those kind of places are still still able to do that. So when would you normally plant corn and soybeans, or what? What's your goal for planting? Oh uh, boy, you know we'd really the years where you get the the best yields is the first of May. Mm-hmm. But this year, I don't believe there was any corn put in our country till the Fourth of July. Uh, we we had a lot of beans in. Oh boy, it was the end of May, you know, the twentieth or so before we was able to start, mm-hmm. and that was another part of our conversation with the boys this morning. Is that we've got enough capable help, we probably need to buy a couple more planters just to to assure that planting can get done in, in a hurry. So did I hear you correctly? You didn't get any corn in until the 4th of July? 4th of July, yeah. Wow. Did you shift some of that corn ground to soybeans or not? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We sent back, sent back a lot of seeds. You know, the corn basically was put up, up close to a dairy mm-hmm. that uh, they were needing to use it for dairy feed. And uh, unfortunately, there won't be any ears on it. Uh, there will be some foliage to it with the water we've had, but... Basically, that's what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And then we planted uh, for the dairy also some of the PPA acres uh, was cowpeas. I don't know okay. if you guys use that in your world or not. But sure, sure. Cowpeas are a pretty sustainable thing. They grow fast. And, uh, and well, before it started raining solid here, we were harvesting it. Did you have some acres you didn't get planted at all? That's 3,200 acres we didn't get planted. Mm-hmm. So when you rent land from somebody, how many years do you try to tie it up for? Well, uh, we're kind of open on that. We a minimum of three years, mm-hmm. and you you usually working with the folks. You know, if something happens, they can back out of it. You know, if they want to sell it or mom sure. and dad passes away. But normally a three year thing. That and we just got a new one this year that we did it for one year. Guy was a farmer, and you know he just wanted to see how we would operate the farm and what we could do for him. And well, I got a call from him yesterday, and he said we could probably rent it as long as we want it now. So we're Good, cleaning the place up, and we're planning on running tile in it this fall if it straightens up. Every acre's got to got to produce, and like those uh, fellows that didn't have the time probably or the means to you know do the cleaning, and it it uh, it makes a difference. Right. Let's talk about tiling rented land. Tell me about how you do it. Mm-hmm. That that is uh, a long term <laughs> thing. You know, uh-huh. if we we're doing one right now that we've had the farm for 
probably 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, this, we had a period of time, uh, and that was again one of them that was PP'd or not planted. And uh, we talked to the, the fellow that owns it, a very progressive gentleman. And uh, it's a, a 10 year lease, if, and we're going to tile the whole thing. Yeah. Pretty solid 10 years, and he's more agreeable to that. What kind of it'll pay? What kind of investment per acre would you have for tiling? Well, in our our case uh, here, it's you, you just about with our own equipment, our own men. You're going to run between fifty and seventy five dollars an acre mm-hmm. to do it right. Right. So, Ray, what have I neglected to ask you about? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's things that I, I think the thing that is most important to me is I, I I really think that as time goes on and, and you know economics drives change mm-hmm. and if we have to start producing corn at the four dollar and below level and our soybeans below eight dollars and with the future not so sure about the Pacific Rim everywhere I'm thinking the economics is going to start talking to us again about uh, the limited trips, if we can do it all in one trip, and mm-hmm. maybe spend a little time learning what the end results might be. It'd be worthwhile to start building the bigger planners mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where I am. I mean, it's not good. It's not good times in agriculture for a lot of people, but it seems no. to me like the no-tillers are doing a little better than the than the average. You know, that's what I get the calls constantly. And just year after year, you know, whether it's a good year, bad year, well, my stuff is looking better. And then when harvest comes, they'll call me and say it was better. You know, it's uh, it just makes you feel good. It, uh, it may, makes a little bit of a difference for everybody. And I think the, as time goes on, there's going to be better things out there all the time. Right. You know, People keep working on stuff, and I think the major people maybe come to the realization that uh, they can stay in business without selling all the tillage tools that they have to. Mm-hmm. We'll see. And I, I just I always remember that uh, when you plow a good piece of ground under alfalfa, corn stalks, wheat stubble, in the first 17 hours, you've you've lost about 80% of the carbon that could have been held in that, that ground. Right. And I just, I've never forgot that, and there's, there's quite a lot to it, to health of the soil. What do you think but, the per acre benefit of no-till is? Well, here again, I think it's long-term. I I would say if 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 we were to buy a farm, I would, I would probably be looking at another four or five hundred dollars an acre if it was a long-term no-till farm mm-hmm. and as far as uh, advantageous to the operator itself it's kind of hard to put a real number on it with the fuel and so forth but it's right. it's got to be you know in that 75 to 100 dollar an acre yeah. if they put it all together yeah. right. well We've talked for an hour. I think okay, I appreciate it. And uh, I got to come back up and see you one of these days. Yeah, I wish that would be great every once in a while. Right. So that's good. 
Right. Okay. That works. Thanks, Ray. Okay. Yeah, bye. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. A reader asked uh, when we first started No-Till Farmer back in 1972, did we get any pushback from those who criticized the method? We sure did, and one of the first to criticize was my own dad. He asked me, what are you doing? Are you nuts taking a job involving No-Till? But a few weeks later, he asked me some more questions about No-Till, and a couple years later, we actually started No-Tilling our family farm back in Michigan. There was a lot of criticism early on. The big farm machinery companies weren't in favor of no-till. They wanted to keep selling big horsepower tractors and 35 and 40 foot wide tillage tools. So getting where we are today has been a real accomplishment. And a lot of the early adapters would no-till in a field far away from the highway so their neighbors wouldn't see what they're doing. And it grew from there. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Ray Rawson for today's conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillconference.com to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.